politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. You're listening to KPFK in Los Angeles. I'm Michael Benner, your host for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and I'm so happy you've decided to join us today. And hope you make it a habit every Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock and streaming for the world at 20 Hours Universal. We're also podcast and available on the website, theagelesswisdom.com. And as you probably know, this is a show about consciousness. It's a program about awareness, Uh, not only self-awareness, but the way we view the world. And central to the whole study of consciousness, of course, and our particular unique view of the world is the question, who am I and and, uh, what are we for? It's that Greek platitude, right? Know thyself. And that we hear that, but it is rarely followed by any instruction about how to do that and, and what kind of systems are available when we decide, yeah, I would like to know myself better, which is a rare thing. Most people never, never get to that point. In fact, I think there's really a lot of uh, fear and anxiety around uh, the idea of knowing who we are because of this whole feeling I think that each of us gets from time to time in our lives that we don't fit in, uh, that there's something wrong with us, we're not good enough. You know, that fear of inadequacy that if you're going to be honest about it, everybody has. Sometimes the most successful people, by all appearances, are driven by this deep, Uh, anxiety about really not being enough. and So I think you can make a case for the fact that many of us know the world better than we know ourselves. And when it comes to systems, there are a few, and I think there's one that stands out. My guest today has been with us before. It's been probably 15, 16 years since I had the pleasure of talking to him. He's known for his scholarship on this topic, and... uh, has several books available. He does uh, private work uh, consulting. And we're talking about a system pioneered by Gurdjieff, but a system that really goes back in time. And we'll talk about the backstory. The Enneagram. We're talking about the Enneagram as an approach to an understanding of personality. And my guest, uh, returning victoriously to KPFK, is Russ Hudson. And Russ, Good afternoon, and welcome to KPFK in L.A. Thank you so much, Michael. It's really cool to be back. It it has been a while, but uh, it feels really good to be here with you. Yeah, well, chatting with you here for a few minutes before we went on the air, uh, we sort of picked up where we left off. I think we're simpatico in that uh, we share an interest in human beings, of course, we all get frustrated with other people from time to time. They trigger us in odd and unusual ways. But I'm fascinated by people, and I like people. I think 
Well, I think I like people because of how fascinating they really are. And for all we, you know, say about being part of one life, uh, it is a little paradoxical just how unique each one of us really is. What was your entry point to the Enneagram as a system of understanding individuality or personality types? Because the word sort of suggests there are nine, Ennea, nine. Uh, what's your backstory? How did you get into this field? Well, you know, like a lot of the most interesting things, uh, it wasn't part of any conscious plan that I had, that's for sure. Um, I think the inner work kind of gets us um, as much as we're seeking some kind of path of of understanding, of, of understanding the human condition, as you were just saying. I don't know. I was a young whippersnapper uh, back in the 1970s and like a lot of people around then, I was interested in the bigger questions. You know, I was going to sit with all the interesting Eastern gurus who were here in the country. I was talking with Christian contemplative leaders. I was interested in the Kabbalah from Judaism and all kinds of things. <clears throat> and hanging out with other people more or less my age who were similarly inclined. Um, but somewhere in there, uh, someone slipped me... Um, a book by a man named Ospensky called In Search of the Miraculous. And that book outlined the teachings of Gurdjieff, who you were just mentioning, and it kind of blew my mind. It was an approach to the way things are that made sense to me. He talked a lot about the possibility of human development, of the deepening and or expansion of human consciousness, but also a lot about why that doesn't happen that often. Why don't we develop more easily? And he explained some of the forces, uh, psychodynamic and otherwise, that were kind of keeping things the way they are. And all this was uh, really illuminating. And after some searching, uh, without going into the long, kind of interesting backstory of that, I found uh, the Gurdjieff work, the authentic Gurdjieff work. I studied with people who lived with Gurdjieff, um, not people who just read the books, but people who actually had lived with him, studied with him, and that he had chosen to carry on his work when he passed away. Mr. Krajeev died, I think, in 1949. But um, anyway, I was quite happy with all of that. And then while I was studying that, I learned about this symbol, the Enneagram. But it's very important to, to get that the Enneagram symbol and the way we used it in the Gurdjieff work is not a, its not much like the popular Enneagram that's out there now. It was for other purposes, and there was another understanding of it. However, at some point, I ran into an article about a man named Oscar Chazo and some work he had done with the Enneagram where he was talking about these kinds of people, these soul types, you might even say, arranged around the Enneagram symbol in a certain way. And that was interesting, but I didn't really pursue it. But a couple of years later, I encountered a book at a kind of a metaphysical bookstore here in New York City um, by a man named Don Richard Riso, and it was called Personality Types. And it had a big Enneagram symbol on the cover, and I thought, well, who's this guy? And what's he got to say? And I started, you know, leafing through it, and I couldn't resist. I 
I went ahead and, and bought the book and took it home and, and studied it. And Don had just a little tiny byline at the bottom of the back cover of his book saying, Don Richard Riso has a consulting company, Enneagram Personality Types Incorporated in New York City. And I thought, you know, well, I live in New York City, so maybe he's nearby. <clears throat> so I went in the phone book. Remember those? <laughs> Back in the day when we didn't have smartphones or even cell phones, we had to look things up in the phone book. And I looked up, and sure enough, I found any grand personality types. Gave him a call. This deep voice of uh, Don answered the phone, and we started a conversation that lasted many years. I ended up working with him and uh, basically, Don had done over a decade, more like 15 years of serious research and study and inquiry into what these nine types or patterns were. And I had come with this, you know, 10 years plus background in the Gurdjieff work and in the inner kind of contemplative practices and behind the Enneagram, the purpose for it, really. And so we started working together and we're trying to find a, a beautiful alignment between, let's say, the popular face of the Enneagram, which kind of boils down to which one of these nine fits you best, right? And how does that information translate into helping us, as you said at the beginning, discover who and what we really are, to find and live out a more complete integrated human wholeness and that was really uh what we were after and as you also said we we're trying to find a way that integrated the psychological with the spiritual which i think the enneagram does very naturally so that's that's the medium length version of the story <laughs> so when i interviewed you 15 16 years ago don was with you the two of you were in studio here at kpfk and I remember you guys fit like hand in glove. You sat on either side of me, and I had this joyous feeling of being right in the center of this. I mean, it was like you guys finished each other's sentences. <laughs> I mean, looking at the Enneagram, were you compatible in that sense as well? Oh, yeah. It was, it was weird. I mean, we came from very different backgrounds. Uh, we had our own personal lives. But when it came to um, this exploration, um, something just clicked. You know, a, um, an astrologer looked at our astrological charts and told us that our suns and our moons were both conjunct within one degree, and that the chance of that was astronomically remote. So, may, you know, you can assume maybe there was some kind of karmic destiny here. I don't really know. I, I'm a little suspicious of getting grandiose about that kind of stuff, but there certainly was a sense when we met each other, like we had found each other and that we were supposed to have found each other. And then what we needed to do grew out of that. When people say that they're reading Gurdjieff or Espensky, it always seemed to me like a signal that they were really intelligent, they were intellectuals, they were willing to wade into these really heavy, pithy texts. Um, I've waded into it. It's like reading Blavatsky or Alice Bailey. It's just yeah. 
really heavy, heavy stuff. Is there a secret to reading Gurdjieff and Lispensky and and finding the heart and soul of it and making it a little more easy to digest? Well, yeah, I think any of the books that have had a big impact on me, some of them were like that. You can't, you can't uh, just gobble them. Not really possible. If you think of Aurobindo and his writings, The Life Divine, oh my goodness. Or if you think about more from psychology and, and um, sociology, I, I was very influenced by uh, Gebser, Jean Gebser, and the book The Ever-Present Origin. You, you don't read that book quickly. That book blew Ken Wilber's mind. You know, I think books like that you have to live with. You have to take your time. You read a little bit and you digest it. You might reread the same couple, two, three pages several times and really take them in and see how they sit with you and what makes sense and what doesn't. And uh, I think that we're just so used to doing everything quickly. And these books are almost intended to be read slowly. They almost are written in such a manner that you have to read them slowly. I know that Gurdjieff wrote... uh, his book, All and Everything, in intentionally difficult language so that you couldn't speed read it. You had to stop and actually think about it and read it with a different kind of attention. I think that's really the whole idea. The other thing I found helpful with some of these kind of books is to read them out loud. Like, that's uh, a good tip. Yeah, because it's it's something, it's a very different experience to just be in your head reading the words and to sit somewhere comfortably and read the words aloud. It, it I think it brings in more of the whole of us. I think that the reason, you know, some people I know are interested in spirituality, and they say, well, why do you need all that head stuff? Well, one of the answers to that is the Enneagram teaches us that our development requires all of our intelligence, our kinesthetic uh, instinctual intelligence requires our emotional intelligence requires our cognitive intelligence and if we're actually going to understand reality on a deeper level if we're going to live into a reality deeper than our ordinary conventional consciousness we got to learn <laughs> different things we got to open our mind to some different ideas and that's part of it and th- those things will affect our heart in different ways and hopefully how we live in certain ways but I think just it, your question, Michael, just brings me to the realization right now of how impatient we all are nowadays. Everything should be instant, done. I mean, we want instant results. Not only that, we've got instant experts. We have people who've watched two podcasts about the Enneagram and they've set themselves up as gurus. You know, These traditions and the ideas behind them take a while to really absorb to where they're not just in an idea in our head, but they're something we actually understand something we can actually live. That takes time. And, and I just would say to everybody, you know, just our patience in process is a very important component of this. And <laughs> struggling with a worthy book is, is a great way to learn how to do that. One of the things I like about this literature is the way it, reveals to me an ever-expanding overview of humanity from, again, a spiritual and a psychological and a philosophical and a sociological uh, 
it, it runs the gamut, and there is something known as the perennial philosophy or perennialism that I wish more people understood, uh, not because I think it's the one right way, but because it is so expansive and so inclusive. Well, just on that, comment, if you would, on the way you see the Enneagram and Gurdjieff's work fitting into perennialism. Sure, that's a super interesting question, Michael. Um, well, I would say Gurdjieff himself was definitely a perennialist in the sense that he was presenting to modern minds ideas that had been cooking in uh, the Western contemplative tradition, to describe it broadly, uh, for centuries, if not millennia. Uh, some of these ideas go back to pre-classical civilization. They go back to Egypt and the ancient Near East and uh, where there were a lot of the frameworks that later led to Greek philosophy, uh, later led to some of the theological frameworks of the Western prophetic religions. By that I mean Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, you know, in the East, <laughs> there were, uh, in the East, people were cooking up another variant, another version of that, but there's crossover and differences. But I think that um, it just seems intelligent to take a look at what people have found worthy over thousands of years of time. You know, that if we take for a moment that most of the kind of people who are looking at these sorts of ideas were, like you said, intelligent people through the ages, across cultures, and they were finding common ground and commonality. And then each era we get the way that we can understand that and express it and see the context of it in our own time, in our own culture. So I really think the Enneagram coming out as it is now is, is like that. It's as, as much an invitation as it is a teaching. It's an invitation to look at this perennial tradition and, and how it might be relevant to how we're trying to get through things these days, you know. I think it has tremendous relevance, but, you know, uh, I also know that people have to find that out in their own experience. I think central to perennialism, the perennial philosophy, is Neoplatonism. And again, these are big words, and it's like, Neoplatonism, my God, what are you talking about? What is that? And uh, we can't even seem to agree on whether we pronounce the name Plotinus or Plotinus. Right. I, I've always said Plotinus, and they get corrected by everybody. But uh, this fella wrote a book called The Enneads, right? Or a series of volumes. Right. Again, the father of Neoplatonism, who arguably, again, was platonic in his philosophies, but a, really a perennialist, part of this mystical tradition that, as you've already suggested, embraces both Western, Eastern, and Middle Eastern philosophies and religions. And there seems to be so much conflict and infighting among fundamentalists in particular about whose religion is right. I sure would like to see more understanding about the the view that 
there's more in common here than different. Yeah, <clears throat> I think so. I think there definitely is a core of sensibility in the Western traditions. Of course, as I said, there's that translates over into the Eastern traditions as well. I think a person who has really done their spiritual homework, somebody who's really done their practice, their prayer, their meditation, their contemplation, they meet somebody who's done that from another tradition, they're going to grin and they're going to understand things together because they didn't get hung up on the structure, on the form. They got, they followed it to what it was pointing to, like that very famous uh, Zen story of the three students and the Zen master and the Zen master's pointing at the moon and one, uh, one of the students falls in love with the, the teacher and doesn't awaken. The second one focuses on the finger pointing, the method that student doesn't awaken. And only the third looks at the teacher, sees the finger, follows it, and sees the moon. <clears throat> it's a great little metaphor. And I think speaking to what you're, you're exploring here, uh, I also tell people, for example, if I'm working with Christians, I say, you know, you don't have to change your religion. Actually, this kind of work helps you live your religion. Scourge said the fourth way lives that we might be able to follow the commandments of Christ because the personality cannot. The ego can't do it. So it's, it's sort of learning to cooperate with grace, you might say. And, uh, you know, I say the same thing to my Muslim or Jewish students. You can absolutely follow the teachings and relevant passages and you're learning more to listen for what they're pointing to like that story um and yeah, the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon uh, the other version of that or variation i like is uh the map is not the territory oh yes <clears throat> right and that's true the enneagram too the enneagram is just it's a way of pointing out some important things that we might want to be aware of if we're trying to live an awake and compassionate life, but it isn't telling us who we are in any ultimate sense, to get back to your initial question. Well, let's break it down. I'm going to take a short break here, and when we come back, let's talk about these nine personality types and maybe even touch a little bit on the symbol itself. We're, on, we're doing radio, so you can't show it to anybody, but everybody's got Google. They can look it up, and it's a beautiful symbol. It, it speaks of uh, balance and integration, individuality and oneness all at the same time. It's a great symbol, um, like the Tao symbol, I think. It's just worthy of contemplation by itself. And we'll talk about these different personality types we're discussing the Enneagram today on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My guest is Russ Hudson, and we'll be back right after this short break. You're listening to KPFK. The best things in life are free, and yet they say no one rides for free. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance, and KPFK Radio remains vigilant thanks to donations from listeners appreciative of KPFK's importance presenting conversations and considerations on our changing world. KPFK needs your support to keep moving these discussions forward. Please visit kpfk.org and make your donation of $50, $100, or any amount of $25 or more to become a KPFK member in solidarity with free 
free-thinking, and freewheeling radio. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining KPFK Los Angeles for the ride. It's the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles, 90.7 FM, live streaming for the world at kpfk.org. And a few hours after the broadcast here, we podcast forevermore on all platforms. You can also hear the show streaming on demand at theagelesswisdom.com. We're talking about uh, Gurdjieff's work. We're talking about... uh, meetings with remarkable men. We're talking about Sufism. We're talking specifically with my guest, Russ Hudson, about the Enneagram. So let's wade into it, Russ. This is like, uh, you know, if we were talking astrology, people would want to know immediately, what's my son sound? Yeah, they want to know that stuff. (laughs) So is there a primary and secondary point on the Enneagram, or is it just I'm one, two, three, four, one of the nine points. How's that work? Well, you know, of course, there's some complexity to it. And, of course, everybody has elements of all of it in us. I mean, nobody's missing chunks of our personhood, right? They all represent needs. They all represent survival strategies. They all represent, on a deeper level, qualities of consciousness, qualities of presence. And it's good to remember, I don't think we can say it too many times, Our Enneagram point is not who we are. It's not any final statement about our identity. It was originally designed as from people who were living lives of meditation and prayer, originally in the deserts of Egypt, the desert fathers and mothers. And they were looking at what distracted them from their contemplation, from their absorption in, in God, in their language. Um, and so they saw that the rest- the distractions were limited. <laughs> there were only certain ones that everybody seemed to have a variation of, and that we tended to keep having the same one. It's sort of a root of our um, psychology in a way. So when you look at the types, I, I I don't just I no longer just describe them like this type of person is like this. I talk about them in terms of that journey of awakening because that's what they're for. I tend to start with point eight, uh, and I do that because eight, nine, and one, which sit at the top of the the circle of the Enneagram, are all about embodiment and the intelligence of the body, instinctual intelligence in different ways. And they're, all of these are on one level beautiful and necessary human qualities that show up as we do. As we're more present and here, there are ways you know you're present because certain qualities manifest. When we're not present, we tend to fall into survival patterns, psychological routines, which we call broadly an ego, which isn't bad or wrong or evil. It's necessary, but it's not what we are. And so as long as we're identified with it, we're never quite getting to the good stuff. We can be a very good boy or girl, and we're still not getting to the good stuff. So with eight, just kicking it off, when you and I are more present, relaxed in our body, heart, mind, we feel empowered. We feel confident. We feel energized. We feel 
the force of life. Life is vivid. It's immediate. It's real. It's yummy. And like, yeah, that's <laughs> like that eight energy and empowerment, confidence, inner strength. These are all qualities that a person who's more in themselves experiences. And people who have that as their dominant pattern, there's some people for whom that's the main thing. It's like their gift to the world. They're alive. They're big. They're empowered. They help other people be empowered. It's And who doesn't like that? Um, now, the problem here is as we lose presence, we lose the aliveness. We lose the immediacy. We lose the empowerment. And, oh, my gosh, then we feel scared, like something's going to get us. We're vulnerable. And so the ego... <laughs> becomes protective in some sense, defensive. And um, for people who have eight as the dominant energy, they get tough. They get hardened. Take care of business. Make things happen. Speak your mind. But there's a kind of edge to it now. And it, it can, and the less present we are, the more scared we get and the more we amp up um, what was traditionally called lust, which doesn't mean sexual lust. It means this excessiveness of energy. I'm overdoing things as a compensation for not being connected with that realness and aliveness. And so, you know, that can go really into problem areas left unchecked. It can go into control issues, power issues, domination, etc. places we don't want to go. But we can get caught in those if we're, we forget there's another way back home. Is that uh, another way of talking about that? Would that be the same as attachment, the the holding on for dear life, whether it's holding on in our bodies to muscular tension or holding on to a bias or a prejudice or a belief system, holding on to our emotions? Is that what you mean by lust in a non-sexual way? Well, lust is just... All of the, the Enneagram points in some sense are an attachment to some kind of pattern or structure that lives in our body, lives in our emotions, lives in our mind. So lust in the body is maybe, we can think of it as like body armoring in the way Reich talked about it. Like we harden ourselves even physically. We harden against our own breath. We don't want to feel vulnerable. And then emotionally, we're protecting ourselves from our own softness, even from our own needs sometimes to be strong, to be tough. But again, we're trying to get there, but in a way that's not going to ultimately work. You know, there's a lot of fairy tales about this, right? And the mind too, you know, just the eight in freedom can be brilliant, creative, think about all kinds of wonderful things, but our mind gets sort of enslaved by practical and instinctual considerations. You know, how can I keep the business going? How can I beat out the competition? How can I put food on the table? Those are real concerns and they're not wrong, but it's just there's something lost. And as we go through all the, the points, I think you'll see the pattern, but always understand there's a relationship between the real deal, what is called in the tradition essence, the essence of the type, and how the personality tries, in a sense, to imitate it, but can't ever quite achieve it because it's not it's a reaction to the perceived loss of the essence. Are there labels that we can use for these points? Oh, yeah. Like you've mentioned, eight, nine, and one. How, how do we label those? You talk about holding on. I want to hold on. <laughs> <laughs> we want a good tag. Right. The, the, the name that Don Riso and I had for the eight is the challenger, because I'm a person who likes challenges, 
and I give challenges. You know, I, I incentivize by giving people challenges, let encourage people to rise to the occasion. And I, I like challenges. I don't mind conflicts. You know, it's just part of life from my point of view. So moving along to point nine, I'll just give the name. That was the challenger. The nine is the peacemaker. So obviously different, but there are related issues. The nine shows us how when we're present, for one thing, we relax. We physically relax. You can't tense your way into presence. You relax your way into presence. And as we relax, we start to feel landed. We start to feel reconnected inside and out, like everything hooks back up again. And we also feel, and this is, it's such an emotional way to talk about it, but it's its accurate. We feel like we've come home. We feel like we've been wandering, wandering, wandering in the, in the canyons of our mind, right? The windmills of our minds. And we come back to ourselves and it feels like we've come home. And from a metaphysical point of view, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive. Coming home to ourselves is how we meet the universe, is how we meet the cosmos. If I'm not here, how am I going to meet anybody? Right? We, we think we got to get out of ourselves to engage the totality, the, the union, the wholeness. But it's coming into ourselves that in our precious bodies, through our immediate, the immediacy of our life force, that we reconnect with everything. And the nines are always about that relaxing quality. They can be super creative people. They can be great intellectuals too. But they're, the whole thing is this invitation to come home. Yeah, that's the prodigal son, right? Exactly. Exactly the prodigal son. It's like we're all afraid we're going to get a whooping if we go home we're going to be in trouble but actually it's the opposite we come home and every it's the great reunion inside nine sits at the very top of the enneagram which lets us know there's something very centrally important about this particular teaching when we're not present we're not at home we're in our own little world and you watch people it's easier to see another people just walk around the supermarket walk around the local shop and just see how Nobody's here. We're all lost in our own little inner movie, and we're not really connecting. We might say, I love you, honey, and we're, we're out to lunch. So the nine is about how amazingly we human beings can be there and not be there at the same time. We can drive a car. We can go to a business meeting. We can make executive decisions, and we're, we're thinking about a fishing trip inside. You know, so it's that, that weird capacity. And it's also about the split between an inner life where we tend to hang out and the outer world, which for the nine feels kind of conflictual, rude, uh, mean-spirited, etc. I don't want to deal with this lower consciousness world. I want to go inside to my inner world. But again, the, the what's counterintuitive is it's in returning into our actual felt sense here and now that we reconnect with our true inner life and our true outer life. And that's the big reunion. And the number one. One is, um, we call one the reformer. Sometimes call him the educator. One is the part of us that cares deeply about integrity, honesty, walking our talk, um, being in service to higher principles, you could say. 
And so when ones are in their game, when they're present, that's what they do. That's what they are. They're very, very inspiring to other people. We look up to them as because they're doing their best to live what we all kind of intuit is how a human being potentially could be, right? And we all want to live. We want to be spiritual grown-ups, not little kids forever and ever. We want to, you know, fill our shoes. And so ones do their best to do that. And when they do that from the right place, there's also great kindness from them. When they lose presence, they try to come to that integrity and alignment through tension, rigidity, and trying to be right. And, you know, you don't have to look too hard to see that we all do that sometimes. We all want to be right, you know, and can be kind of obnoxious to other people in the process where our correctness or our rightness is more important than actually solving a problem with another person or with a situation. I'd say that one of the most important signs for me of maturity, spiritual maturity in a human being, is their capacity to recognize where we've been in error and to correct it. I can see where we would need a full-day seminar or perhaps a weekend retreat to just get a basic understanding of the Enneagram. And here I'm asking you in a matter of minutes to pull back the veil and, and reveal all this to us. So sorry for rushing you, but uh, that's a third of them. We have six more. Can, you, <laughs> can I do them a little quicker? <laughs> <laughs> I did my best. Well, sure. I, that feels like a triangle to me. It's not a triangle on the Enneagram, but it feels like the other six you're going to tell us sort of fit into those three. Yeah. They're, all of them are about a re, the kind of dialectic I was explaining, that there's what the type is in its glory and its gift and it's what it is as a quality of necessary human consciousness, and there's what it is as it contracts into a de- defensive structure. So just like two is our capacity to to love, to be generous, to connect on a heart level, to care. Uh, loving kindness is pretty basic. Um, it contracts into kind of codependency, um, taking care of people whether they want that or not, helping people whether they want it or not, always trying to be needed and, and sort of neglecting oneself in the process, kind of classic codependency. Three is... Uh, it's it's three is it, it speaks to something you you were saying, Michael. It's yes, we are consciousness. We are the one. That's the one aspect of realization. But that one also took a lot of trouble to produce this very particular individual human being with particular capacities and talents, and that counts too. So three is about okay. I'm here. What do I do with my life? What's my purpose? Where will I find meaning? How can I use my skills and talents and, and whatever God has granted me <laughs> to live a good life and to contribute something of value? See, threes are on about value. When we're not connected to the real deal, we feel empty inside. We don't feel valuable. We, don't, we can't find meaning. We can't find purpose. So society and our families and external things tell us you should care about this and you should become like this. And so then we work our our buns off, we just can become really driven to achieve these things, hoping it'll make us feel that value. But just leads to workaholism and burnout more often than not. So four is, um, it's about 
the mystery of who and what we really are. What are we beyond all our concepts and narratives? What's actually here? Who or what is the experiencer of this moment? And, you know, what you get is it's a mystery. <laughs> it's, 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 you can't exactly describe it. But what I always tell the students is the symptom that you're closer is you start to see and feel more beauty. The world seems more beautiful. You feel more beautiful inside. You feel more intimacy. Like intimacy and beauty kind of come together as a package deal. But they're the sign that you're actually dropping into the mystery of what you are. And by the way, if you're really doing that, you're appreciating the mystery of the person across the table from you too. Um, it's not just me and no one else. We're all the mystery. And when we don't do that, we get hung up on our what makes us an individual, what makes us different, how we're sorting endlessly through the minutia of our experience, trying to get clues about who and what we are, but in a way that gets kind of excessively self-involved and kind of makes other people feel alienated from us and us alienated from other people. Just get a couple of minutes left, five, six, and seven then. <laughs> Rocking and rolling, five. Well, that's my home base. Uh, Five is um, our capacity for realization, for understanding, for revelation, the aha moment. Oh, gosh, I get it. It's that, right? And so people who are fives have a capacity for that, but they also live for such moments. That's what's important, They're coming to some deeper understanding, seeing through the veils of appearance to what's the real truth, right? So that's beautiful, but it turns into just an endless intellectual quest for knowledge, information. Uh, it turns into memorizing stuff and thinking that will lead to knowing. It turns into also a kind of contraction and staying away from people because I need to do that to hear myself think, right? So, and all that can lead to a lot of problems, to say the least. The six is um, attentiveness, mindfulness, noticing what's going on in me and around me picking up the details, and knowing how to intelligently respond to the situation I'm in. So it's kind of operational wisdom, operational intelligence. So six is, is this bright, precise, knowing what's going on and knowing what to do. And that's, and that's beautiful. The more relaxed and present we are, the more that tends to operate, and it can show up in art or business or engineering or pretty much anything. The downside is when we lose that sense of clarity and knowing what's going on and what's where we're going we start freaking out and trying to figure out what should i do what should i do what should i do we get scared we get nervous we're stressed and then life is instead of something to live we're just handling it we're handling problems we're dealing with life and trying to navigate while feeling disconnected from that knowing and then the seven last but not least <laughs> is our capacity for joy our our inner freedom our sense of living into potentialities, our sense of uh, the limitlessness of human consciousness, right? So when we're in the good side of seven, when we're present, we anything can delight us. Anything can be wonderful. Everything feels like a gift. We just walk around a lot of gratitude. When we're not so present, that seems to be missing, and we're thinking we're missing out on the right thing. So we're trying this, that, and the other thing. We're exploring all the options because we're trying to get back to that sense of freedom. Last thing to say is that then the ego turns the whole idea of freedom into the idea of having choices. The more choices I have, the more freedom I have. But this is a problem because as soon as I make a choice, there are less choices available. So then I 
feel like I'm losing freedom every time I make a choice. So there's, you know, there's just tons of teachings about each one of these. I'm giving you, obviously, the, the quickest uh, download, but uh, hopefully you can get a sense of some of it from this. Well, I get a sense of a system that's very well not only thought out, but felt out, fleshed out. And we have other systems. I mean, from the I Ching to astrology to Myers-Briggs, you know, and yet every time I hear someone like you speak about the Enneagram, which is not that often, unfortunately, I wish there were more material available. You mentioned Oscar Ichazo. That's the Eureka Institute out of Chile, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, Oscar passed away a couple of years ago. But yes, he, that was, he created the Eureka Institute. Is that still a thing? Is that still happening? Yeah, as far as I know, the Eureka is still around. I, I don't think it's as big as it once was in its heyday, but I think there are definitely still Eurekans out there practicing and trying to continue in the work that uh, Oscar set out. Yeah. There are a number of different schools of thought on the Enneagram out there. Um, I just say the go with the ones that help you wake up. <laughs> Same as like yeah. people ask me, which type? Am I this or this? I said, pick the one that will help you wake up. That's the thing. I want to be all of them. <laughs> well, you are. <laughs> uh, but I want to integrate them into a conscious understanding of where I'm dancing at any given point in in my life or in the day. And uh, how, how can folks get a hold of your material? You have a new audio book? Yes, I sure do. You have paperback books and hardbound books and e-books and Russ Hudson. I guess you just Google Russ Hudson. or RussHudson.com, pretty easy. Uh, all the resources are referred to there. Did an audio book with Sounds True. Uh, called the Enneagram Night and Gateways to Presence. But yeah, if you Google my name, you'll probably find a lot of resources. You could also Google Don Richard Riso and you'll you'll find other things that we've done. And your website specifically is RussHudson.com? That's right. That's right. Hey, Russ, what a joy. I wish uh, I could just jet to New York and spend a week with you. <laughs> Uh, talking philosophy and visiting restaurants, that would be... That would be a good week. That would be <laughs> a great week, and I'd bring my wife. We'd have a lot of fun. Thanks. Let's do it again, okay? All right. I'd be happy to. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for taking the time to, to be with us here. Russ Hudson, the Enneagram, and wow, we just barely scratched the surface. There's so much here. Check it out. Thank goodness for Google. You know, you can research anything quickly. And uh, remember, don't limit yourself to what appeals to the head. Open your heart and feel in your body the resonance of, gosh, this feels right. I should go in this direction. This looks like a great read. This audiobook is what I need now. And hopefully part of that will bring, <laughs> bring you back to this show every Tuesday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. 
And after a short break, we'll be right back. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. KPFK regularly takes you behind the headlines and gives you vivid stories of real people that put the news into context. These human stories make what's going on in places that may be far away vivid and real. And not just a collection of sound bites. It is painstaking and laborious work, and it is not cheap. Ultimately, it costs thousands of dollars to make a single hour of radio when you consider all of the factors that go into it. The way we pay for it here at KPFK is the fairest, most straight-ahead, and democratic method in the world. Listeners who value what they hear each pitch in a little money. It's that simple. Please consider how much you value KPFK and go to kpfk.org slash donate and pledge accordingly. Or call us now at 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Thank you. And we're back with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM, KPFK for all of Southern California. I want to again express my appreciation and gratitude to Russ Hudson for his willingness to be with us today and for his scholarly work over the years. Imagine devoting your whole life to the study of this Sufi mysticism, and in particular, the Enneagram. In the remaining minutes I have, I want to talk to you again about uh, supporting this radio station. We are approaching the conclusion of our summer fund drive, and I want to again urge you to consider that really we're always in a fund drive here at KPFK. We have to be, and uh, now more than ever. These are really difficult times. Uh, We have an interim general manager who is not even able to be in the city much of the time. We have no program director. Uh, Senior producers have been let go. Our budget's been cut by over 30%, in large part due to this COVID thing. You know, I was looking at subscribing to a couple of programs for my computer. I was thinking about subscribing to a word processing program and sort of had a choice between Microsoft Word and a couple other programs that are subscription-based and a lot of other programs that we rely on, like the entire Adobe Suite, for example, is subscription-based. If you use a cloud service, probably get a few gigs free, but then there's a subscription for hard drive space on the cloud. And of course, television, you subscribe through your internet provider. The point is, everything costs money. I had a client once tell me about halfway through a session that he didn't think that he should have to pay for the session. And I said, well, okay, tell me why you believe that's so. He said, well, because a lot of what you're telling me is more spiritual than psychological, and I think that ought to be free. And I said, you know, I appreciate your idealism, but we're sitting here on a 95-degree day in Los Angeles in air-conditioned comfort, and unfortunately, that air conditioning is not free, and frankly, I have to pay rent for this office, and it'd be nice if somebody gave me an office for free, but they don't. And so you can listen to KPFK for free, or you can recognize 
not only the responsibility, but I would say the opportunity to be a subscriber. And for any amount that you choose, for $10 a month, for 20 or $25 a month, or more, depending on how often you listen and how much you appreciate what you get from KPFK. I'd like to quickly talk about three principles that are connected, that are really laws of the universe, much like gravity or electromagnetism or, or thermodynamics, the great law of cause and effect. And that comes in three flavors, I think. Cause and effect in belief is the law of attraction. And that's really, you get what you expect. You do, you know. If you're a pessimist, then you're bound to create all kinds of evidence that things are going to blow up on you, they're going to go south. And the, the reason you're a pessimist is you have all this evidence that negativity abounds and you're going to reap it. And of course, the optimist has lots of evidence that even though their outcomes are not always ideal, that nevertheless, by being optimistic, they sort of tilt the scale in their favor. They kind of uh, create their own luck. And again, there's a lot of research that that shows this. I mean, going back uh, 50 or 60 years or more to the experiments of J.B. Ryan at Duke University, where they were throwing dice, and the expectation actually influenced the randomness of what came up on the dice. Not a whole lot. I mean, certainly not to the point of absolute control, but uh, better than chance, repeatedly over and over again. Those who knew what they wanted tended to be favored by an outcome that was in their interest. So if the law of attraction is your belief system about getting what you expect, the second part of this great law of cause and effect is target fixation. And this is the idea that you go where you look. Anybody who has ever skateboarded or roller skated or snow skied or ridden a motorcycle, for that matter, knows that if there's a, an object in your path that you want to avoid, by looking at it while you try to avoid it, you're going to make it almost impossible to avoid. And you can shift your hips and throw your weight and make all these efforts to avoid what you're looking at, but the very fact that you're looking at it says to the brain, this is where we want to go. So the only way then to avoid the obstacle is to look at the path around it, to make a decision about where you do want to go. It's just the way the brain works. You go where you look. That's target fixation. And finally, the third way of looking at the great law of cause and effect is the principle of karma. And this is, you reap what you sow. There's no good karma or bad karma. There are outcomes and consequences of our intentions, of our thoughts and our behavior that we could call good or bad. But karma is just law. It's like, there's no good or bad gravity, right? And like all science, it's true whether you believe it or not. So here's my point. When you hear an appeal on KPFK for you to make a donation to support this great listener-sponsored, nonprofit progressive radio station, and you say to yourself, well, I don't really have to pay anything. Who's going to know? 
or I can't really afford it. They don't know how underpaid and unappreciated I am, and money's tight, and these are difficult times, and and I just sent money to a politician, and I really can't afford it. Think of what you're telling yourself. Consider this in the context of laws of prosperity. If you tell yourself you can't afford it, or you don't need to make a contribution to the world, being a better place, more well-informed, and to promote understanding and egalitarianism. If you don't see yourself as benefiting from that, then you're at the very least missing the opportunity that comes from planting the wonderful seeds of acknowledging that you can make a difference, that you do make a difference when you contribute to KPFK. You're planting seeds that are going to grow and sprout. How does an acorn become an oak tree? Where does all that that material come from? Well, it comes from the earth, but more than that, it comes from the sun and the water and and the urgency of life itself to be more, to have more, to do more, to grow, to evolve, to create, to manifest. They do feel really strongly about this question that, comes up again and again. What are you doing for other people? How are you helping other people? And that's why I do this radio show. I'm happy to do it. I'm thrilled at the opportunity to make a contribution here as a volunteer. But some folks have to be here every day, and they volunteer as much as they can. But there are costs involved. We've got air conditioning to pay for, too. And and a mortgage on the building and a transmitter on Mount Wilson that's pumping out over 100,000 watts, 24 hours a day, every day of the year. Help us out, will you? Go to kpfk.org slash donate and look for a sustainer circle. Set up your contribution of 10 or 20 $25 a month or more if you can afford it and your conscience dictates it. kpfk.org slash donate. Do that right now before the top of the hour. Set it and forget it, right? Just one-time thing. And then every month, that amount of money will be drawn out of your checking account or savings account or however you set that up. And at the end of the year, you'll have a nice tax deduction as well. Talk to your tax people about that. Won't you help out? Won't you make a contribution right now? Subscribe monthly at Sustainer Circle. kpfk.org slash donate. Go to Sustainer Circle and make a difference. Support what supports you. Thanks so much. And keep in mind, this program, The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, is podcast. It streams each week at theagelesswisdom.com. And you can find out more about me at michaelbenner.com. Thanks for listening. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner from KPFK in Los Angeles. So long.